Here we are, Joe. Hello. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm good. We a little update from Health Corner. Oh. I do have I do have a little sniffle. Oh, okay. I do have a little cough. Okay. Uh, it, the cough was worse yesterday, in fact, when I was teaching, which was a bit of a difficulty. But Yeah, you don't want that. Uh, but hey, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling uh, at least no worse today than I was yesterday, so a little sniffle. Okay. Um, it looks brighter than you think in here because my pupils were dilated at the eye doctor's, and that has not mm. yet faded. Okay. So, you know, a little update from w- Health Corner. I wasn't even going to mention this, but um, you didn't reflexively turn on the overhead light in World Headquarters. That's true. And I was wondering, huh, maybe Joe's like, you know, it's season three. Maybe Joe's like turning over some kind of new no. leaf. We've got a new chair in here for you. All kinds of new. And, and, well, there and, is a new chair. That's yeah. true. And maybe next week there could be, we might have the professional grade equipment in here. That's so we, true. Maybe not. Maybe the week after. Who knows exactly when it's going right. to be. But it's on. It's going to be coming. Um so I thought, well, maybe there's like a new Joe in terms of like ambient lighting and everything. No, no, because we it, World Headquarters here has um, some nice windows looking out. You know, there's some trees. You know, there's plenty of light in here today. There um, is, but usually, fact. like you just reflexively, like if there's an overhead light, let's turn that thing on. <laughs> That's true. I do, and in this room in particular, not in all rooms, obviously, right? Uh, but uh, in this room in particular, but yeah, today that really isn't called for for me. Mm-hmm. If you'd like it, I'm happy to flick the switch. If you'd like it on, would you like it on? Uh, no. No, okay. I, I prefer just the natural light, passive Great. lighting. There's nothing unnatural about the overhead light that would go on if I flicked it on. Well, uh, well. For some value of the word natural and unnatural, but uh, that's a quibble. I, d- I haven't really looked at those lights very much. They, they do have a different color temperature from that of the of the sun under ordinary conditions. I think, I think. definitionally the, spe- the color presentation of your lights does occur in nature because yeah. they're here. And well, are we going to talk about this? I mean, you know, is there is there anything that is not natural? Uh, it's a great point. Um <laughs> So, yeah, we could, you know, it's, That's words not, are such important I don't think things. the show's going to be about that today. No, though, probably it? not. No. Um, are there any, no other updates, though, huh? Not from Health Corner. <laughs> That's that's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> kicking off a new season with a short, you know, you want a short Health Corner. I think in general, like, you know, all things being equal, you want a short one. Right. Well, look, right. Uh, up to a point, right? I mean, the shortest Health Corner is Joe died. <laughs> Okay, and I don't think I think what that what that gained in brevity it lost right. in happiness. So right. I, I'm, you know, it's there's an inverted U there probably. Right. Do you think one of us is going to have to record an like in memoriam episode one day? <laughs> oh my heavens! <laughs> uh, not using this equipment. Oh well, the equipment I, will have been uh, changed out for some other equipment. Probably. By now. Yeah. In all we, we don't know for sure. Well, given that we're planning to change out equipment within the next week or two, I, I certainly hope that the, yeah, I the just memoriam episode is not recorded on this equipment. Yeah, I mean, anything can happen at, at any time. So This is true. Um, yeah, Boy, you're going to feel like a dope if I die while we're recording today. No, I, I, I just, I mean. Don't you feel like you will have caused my death? Oh, absolutely not. Listeners, no. please I, absolutely understand, not. I definitely think he will have caused my death. <laughs> well, if, if I die while we're recording today, I lay this entirely at your feet. Uh, and as I've said before, you are required to write uh, and deliver the eulogy, the, the principal eulogy at my memorial service. So, uh, Which you want to be more than the health corner update, Joe died. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Huh. That that I've already written for you. I think, <laughs> uh, I think that would be cheating. Huh. Maybe we should do maybe one of our um, one-off episodes should be something about you know what what would we say 
We mm. should eulogize each other in while we're still alive, which, okay. is, which, which is when it will have the most meaningful effect. Unless we're going to, you know, th- we'll leave out the parts where we say, well, there, you know, there was some bad with the good. Clearly, we'll slag each other a little bit. A little eulogies, bit, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But not so much that the, the, that the people who are attending the memorial service kind of rush the stage. <laughs> Just sort of stop you like that's bad form. <laughs> just so you don't want to you don't want to over slag. Yeah, just wanna, just enough to add a little bit of authenticity, right? I guess you want optimum slag or what we call opti slag. <laughs> I don't I don't know that we call it that, but <laughs> we do now. Do you, well, yeah, we then we should workshop that a little bit. Do you <laughs> have any other updates? Is there any? Uh, well, uh, why are you looking at me about these updates? I don't understand. Am I supposed to have an up? Is there some update I was supposed to do that I didn't? That I've no, forgotten? No, 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 I, uh, no. I just, I, I want to make sure, I, I want it to go like you want it to go. It's your show, Joe. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, I, Is I, there some sort of b- plate that's it. made to be broken on stage? Yeah, easily. You know, that's a, so I can break a stage plate. It's a Merlin Man Dan Benjamin thing. It's my show. Fa, fa, fa. Here, hey, here's an interesting thing. Uh, another thing that's in World Headquarters on the wall over there mm-hmm. uh, is a Texas A&M University paper uh, that looks like it relates to you. Yeah. Does that relate to you? Is that a doctor of philosophy certificate? Yeah, I did my math degree there. Yeah. So, so uh, the paper that we're talking about today is being published in the Texas A&M uh, Law Review, correct? I think we've talked before. And because since you refer to that, it's like, uh, I think um, I got that as a gift and, and, and it's nice and I put it in here. I don't, I'm not a diploma framer myself i'm not a displayer of diplomas yeah um maybe you know so maybe there's something so i don't know if cosmically that explains why i never received an actual paper diploma from stanford law school whoa despite like at least one or two inquiries about you you never received no just never received it and 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 then i just like kind of gave up so So do you think you actually did graduate oh yeah my transfer yes absolutely i did graduate i've got the transcript and everything to show it i just don't have to say it with such confidence but you don't have the I don't you, have the diploma. Right. Well. And I don't know why. I think it's because we moved and I gave them a forwarding address. And Oh, do you uh, think they mailed it and it got delivered to somebody else or something? I, I, maybe. I oh, don't know. someone else out there impersonating you as Christian Turner, the Stanford law grad, using your oh, diploma. I never thought about that. They can't yeah, produce I, a transcript on demand, though. Well, so you think. Yeah, that's true. I think there was a kid going to law school around the same time I was, and I won't be any more specific, who forged a transcript. Oh, to be admitted as a transfer student. Somewhere. Oh my! Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, there's, there's more to that story, and, and it's also not good. So in anyway, any event, you, you were saying you received that Texas A&M uh, diploma for your PhD, yes, in mathematics, right? 1999. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, the, I was a one L. I defended my dissertation as a one L. Oh wow! I got my uh, you, you different thinking? topic. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me say it one more time. The paper that we're talking about today, <laughs> yeah. authored by you, is mm-hmm. forthcoming in the Texas A&M Law Review Journal. That's true. And I, that's an interesting connection. Texas A&M University, the law school, is publishing your yeah. paper. And there's a PhD student law. So it's a happy convergence, a harmonic convergence. Maybe it is, yeah. I have no reason A&M. to think it's anything other than spurious, but it is a it is a correlation. Ah. Right. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I don't think there's any interaction between the two but you know okay but it was a it was a it was a it was a happy coincidence you you are present in both stories that's true right 
um, so yeah. you, you are the point at which they converge. Now, the, the, the deeper question is whether one could have happened without the other. Ooh. And that I'm saying, I, I think they, they could have. But in a broader sense, you know, that's a deeper point. Could they really have? Is there any other way things could have gone? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, causation is another show, though, I think. It is. And approximate causation, uh, an important thing raised by the remark you just made, mm-hmm. uh, is, is also another show. Right. And responsibility, free will, determinism, responsibility, yep. moral responsibility, foreseeable harm, possible world, all this harms. stuff. Yeah, boy, yeah. there's a lot we can talk about. A lot of, <laughs> lot of stuff to talk about in season three, I think, Joe. <laughs> so anyway, how do you, how do you, how do you want this to go? We don't have another interlocutor because we're not true. doing anybody else's paper; we're doing my paper, right? And I get is this the part where I um, begin my twenty-minute presentation? <clears throat> Definitely not. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> so. Okay. One thing we talked about doing with other authors and we yeah. tried to do was give people a little bit more of an early bit to, to, to try to state something like a thesis or something like mm-hmm. that so that for listeners who hadn't yet taken a look at the paper or maybe wouldn't take a look at the paper. Right. Do you know, you know what I mean? Do you remember yeah. this? Yeah, when I we do. talked this about is, doing this? This like is we got listen, some listener Chris. Listener and guest Chris was the one who said, hey, maybe it'd be better if like people knew kind of what yeah. the heck was going on. No, I'm, I, I don't know that I am actually fully believe that, uh, but... Uh, it's not crazy. So <laughs> that people should know what's going on. No, that that people don't like they like you know you can look at the abstract. Uh, are we going to put this paper in show notes? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. people could look at the abstract. Uh, if you're only going to read ten pages, I would recommend to people that they read pages three fourteen to three twenty four. Um, okay. Just me personally, that's what I would recommend. I what don't know if the pagination that you have is what will be on SSRN at the time of the show. Which which pages are those? Well, I I looked at the proof that you sent yeah, me, yeah, yeah. and so okay, yeah. uh, and it has page numbers within the document. Is that the stuff about markets and? Um, it's sort of the it's got some definitional stuff, okay, yeah. and it's sort of the basic moving parts, and then huh. you've got the comparison and figures like um, uh, TVs and cars, okay. and then yeah, we'll come back. To what's it. the yeah. one after TVs and cars? Like votes and like yeah, elections yeah. and cars yeah, or something. Yeah, something, or like something? That. I have a few different examples. Yeah, yeah. So so let me tell you. Let me tell you. Uh, let me just give you a story about. Giving the elevator pitch version of this paper, okay. Um, which and then be... I want and then I want to talk about uh, selling bottled water after hurricane. Okay, but you go. And this is a this is a silly story, so I'm not actually going to take on the job of summarizing the paper. I'm still going to leave that to you. Okay, which I'm not going to do because I never do. Okay, um, uh, we may be at an impasse, but we'll see. Uh, I I was uh, as you know, I went to the University of Toronto this past week. Yeah, uh, to give a um, to give a talk on this paper, and boy. It, Talk about a great group of people there. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to. I have not. Yeah, to go, but they would are, love an opportunity to go there. I've never been there. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, and I got lots of. It was a joint um, group of the law and economic uh, law, law and economics group and the legal theory group, and so it was kind of nice. two different groups of people coming together. And um, and they actually have different norms about like whether you give a presentation in advance or whether you just assume everyone's read the paper and then you uh, and and then questions start, which which I kind of would like better. Um, and like midway through giving my presentation, I'm like, huh, this is – I know there's like half the group who wants me to stop immediately and – right? <laughs> right. And so I think it made a worse presentation than it would have been had I not uh, been caught between two worlds. So it wasn't right. a great presentation. But the Q&A was really good. Cool. Um, it was really fun and I got lots of good feedback. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about some of it. Um, you got the sniffles, don't you, Joe? I do. Yeah. That's, well, it's going to happen. Um, so, I, so I arrive in Canada. As you know, I'm not Canadian. 
Did you know that, John? I, I did know that. Okay. So but now s- everyone knows. So I have to cross. Said. Yeah, I, I have to go through mm-hmm. customs, and uh, you know it's it's not so hard to go through Canadian. But there are a bunch of people there, and like there's one flight where they didn't pass out the little slips of paper on the flight you know, that you have to fill out, and so people are like going around looking for these things. And there's like a little machine that you have to feed the pieces of paper into, and it reads it automatically. But you got to like tear off the instructions on the side before you feed it through, and um, and so I did that. Uh, and then I fed it through, and it ate my card. Oh, no. I had to call someone over, and they kind of pulled it out. And she said, oh, just go up there and just tell them that it that it ate it, and they'll just do it right up there at the thing where the immigration officer is. You, you know what this I'm talking about. You're saying to get into Canada. To get into Canada. Canada going okay. into Canada. Um, and so so I do that, and I think it was kind of my fault because I don't think I completely detached the Ooh. the side. I think there was like a little bit of a ragged edge, uh, ragged edge to it. And I – anyway. Um, and so uh, the, the story's going somewhere, as you can probably tell. I, I actually was – uh, really had no idea that okay. that was true. I okay. was beginning to wonder. But. <laughs> okay. So I go through, there's a long line, longer than anyone wants, but you know, I, it's fine with me. I'm, you know, I got nowhere to be. It's kind of late. I kind of wish I was at the hotel, but like, it's fine. It's fine. But a lot of people are very unhappy. So you're in a, a line with a lot of unhappy people. It takes a long time to get up there. Uh, the guy in front of me goes to uh, uh, one of the immigration officers Um who you know, and and then finishes, and then I walk to that immigration officer, and the very first thing, because you know how polite they, are, notoriously polite in Canada, mm. um, and he tells me, next time wait until someone calls you. <laughs> he wow, says, it's fine. Next time wait until someone calls you. Not not in a hello, welcome to Canada way, right. but oh my god, I can't believe you've done this wrong kind of way. So all right, so we're, we started off on a bad foot. Why are you coming to Canada? Giving a talk at University of Toronto. And he asked me then the question, what is the talk on? And I'm like, huh. <laughs> That's like, huh. Like, and immediately I'm thinking about, like, how would I, like, what do I say? Like, it's not, um, and, and I'm tired. Yeah, I'm also very tired. Um, so I'm even less um, sense-making mm. than I am usually. Wow. You can imagine that. And, and so I tell him, I think I mutter, like, oh, it's law stuff. <laughs> And he looks up at me and he goes like, law stuff? And he's like, he, he's not having it. Like he wants more. And really? Like, yeah, he wants more. And so then I go into, well, it's about how um, the world is a, you know, a web of different kinds of markets and how sometimes we segregate them from one another and how sometimes we connect them together depending on all kinds of things. And I start throwing out a bunch of like buzz phrases and stuff basically. And, and eventually he like puts up the hand and he's like, okay, that, that's plenty. That's enough. Right, you can right. come into Canada. Yes. So, yeah. No, um, n- no, uh, no person engaged in mischief of any important variety would take the trouble to come up with what you had just said. No. As a pretext. Exactly. So yeah, it's it has served its purpose. You would have come up with something less cockamamie. Correct. Right. Something like it's about like, you know, whether you can convict criminal defendants of lying. Or something like that. You would just make up like the most obvious kind of – see how I did that on the spot? See how bad that was? Right. But it sounds law-like at least. It does. Yeah. It, so. had, a, it had a ring of law to it. <laughs> um. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, so after I went through there, I'm thinking on my journey from, uh, from the airport to the hotel. Like, okay, well, it actually was a really good question. Like, you know, what is – is there an elevator pitch version of this thing? What, mm. what is the – uh, paper about and because you know I prepared a little talk and I kind of have a indirect way into it but right. um, uh, it causes one to think what is anything about <laughs> yeah we're not going to do that okay um, okay I mean as as I think is true of of things you write 
it, the paper is doing a, a number of things at a number of different levels, right? So it's an example of a way to engage in abstract thinking, in legal and social theory that can promote insights by seeing the way in which things that appear different on the surface are actually structurally the same. Right. That's a thing the paper does. Uh, but there are lots of ways you could do that with lots of different structures and abstractions. Uh, so it also private distinction. I've, I've done some of this before right. in other areas. Uh, and, so yeah. so the, the particular thing that it is about, as you were just saying to the, uh, the customs officer. I think he was the immigration officer. In the immigration I think officer. the customs officer is the one who looks at the baggage. I, I always think it's important to get this distinction right, but I don't know why. Uh, okay. But maybe I'm wrong. Uh, What's really disappointing, as an as an aside, since okay. you've insisted on going into the particulars, <laughs> uh, as an aside, I do think it's disappointing that you didn't uh, try at least to engage in uh, the the Oscar Wilde exchange, as it is uh, affectionately known, which is when Oscar Wilde arrived in the United States to give a lecture tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is reputed to have said, when asked if he had anything to declare. Only my genius. Uh, and, and you didn't do that. Well, uh, I think you know me and I think you know that there are basically zero circumstances under which I would say such a thing. Yeah. But maybe now we've increased that number by one. Right? If you see the opportunity, because <laughs> now you know you can come back and tell me that you did the Oscar Wilde and I will know what you mean. And that would be happy for me. Yeah, I, I would probably say something more along the lines of only, you know, my crazy ideas or, mm. you know, o- only ideas intended to corrupt the nation's youth or something yes. like that. Yeah. yeah, You do lack Wilde's flair. That's true. <laughs> uh, so uh, the particular thing that you do here uh, is – oh, um, <laughs> how, to, how to describe – so uh, – You've got these two things that on the surface look different, right? Uh, campaign finance regulation that is an effort to keep uh, certain kinds of money wealth from uh, distorting political outcomes, which right. are obtained by votes, not dollars, at least on the surface, right? And then these rules of financial – what is it? The financial fair play rules yeah. within the uh, European football Association, there's a U out front yeah. that I'm forgetting now. The U, I think it's what uh, Union of European Football Associations. Oh, it's a Union of Associations. I think it's okay. not, I think that's what it's. How is for. that? How do, do people try to say that word? UEFA. UEFA. Okay. Uh, these fair play rules, which constrain the way that people who own particular teams can uh, spend money on players on those teams, mm-hmm. to try to again prevent just huge infusions of cash to a team from making the team suddenly uh, of a much higher quality than it would be if it had to rely only on money it got from things like gate receipts and t-shirts and jerseys TV rights and, what and yeah right. branded merchandise and- yeah uh, and that these may look like different things but they're actually the same thing which is uh, a concern about uh, power accumulated in one uh, part of life being deployed in a different part of life. I'm using part of life as mm-hmm. a different way to say market or institute. Mm-hmm. And and you say, uh, you know, markets are uh, models of a particular sort. 
is it is a would you say a market is a species of an institution or is it or is it just a another way to talk about an institution rather than a species of an institution? Yeah, I would say it's another way of talking about an institution. Right? So, so an institution it, is just a group of people who are what trying to for me. Like, I understand. You know, that. We're yeah. talking about you. Yeah, well, I'm so, talking to so, you about uh, your paper. Yeah, I would say an institution is a cooperating group. Cooperating group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, what's a market? A market is a cooperating group viewed with its internal power structure. And we talk about internal power structure because what these cooperating groups of people have to do is they have to decide, in part what they have to do is they have to decide what to do, Yeah. right? Uh, I mean, if people are cooperating and we assume that various people in a group, some of them will want to do thing A, some will want to do thing B. Right. Uh, part of cooperating is figuring out like which of those to do or in what order to do them if you do both or, or whatever, right? So part right. of cooperating is interacting and coming up with a way to act yeah. together, right? I think you, you can call it a decision-making group. You can call it, um, uh, you know, and then there are people who view them slightly differently. You can call it like group agents. Like, you know, they have uh, the nature of an agent, someone who can make decisions and act for reasons, um, but they are a group rather than a singular. And and uh, so an interacting, a cooperating group of people, cooperating entails deciding. De- yeah. Right. On this way of thinking. Exactly. Right? And so to to make decisions, you're going to have to decide how to make them. Mm-hmm. And that means you can describe the uh, what's going on in that institution by reference to uh, powers that the people in the institution have to affect a decision, to get right. to a decision. Right. Right. And so, so you can see, immediately see like with, you know, with governments, it's pretty obvious what some of the um, some institutions you could identify and as as existing within the institution with the broader institution in some way. So you have legislatures, you have courts, you have uh, subspecies of those institutions, uh, houses of Congress. You have states, you have individuals, and so you can characterize and, and groups of individuals and private associations. So so kind of a, a group of people may have lots of institutions within it, and uh, so these institutions can be subsets of one another. And in prior work, I've talked about the um, importance for seeing how human beings actually make institutions work, um, the importance for that in identifying public and private institutions. So um, institutions can have a public character if they are um, intended to act on behalf of the larger group and that, you know, their reasons are meant to be grounded in that. Um, Private institutions usually are meant to act for their own kinds of reasons. That's one way of seeing that that difference. Um, and if you look at private and public institutions differently, you can kind of see a lot of similarities between different um, uh, between different collections of people. And so, I, you know, as you know, in prior work, I've talked about this kind of common template or, or atlas of legal systems where you know public institutions making law private institutions making law it kind of divides between the tort and criminal law on the one hand and contract right. on the other that sort of thing right, right. so so I've done that before but the the difference here as you pointed out early on is that by observing uh, by, by kind of training our eye on on how decisions are reached as a function of the distribution of power within the group we're kind of looking more at kind of the inter agent dynamic within institutions and that looks more like market like um, but that that word carries some freight with it, yeah, which it I does. intend for it to carry. But we'll talk about that in a minute. I think. Yeah, yeah and it's it is funny because the um, so this way of of uh, talking about a, a group of people cooperating uh, to get to decisions about what they're going to do, you you could of course talk about things like 
uh, the inside of a particular business entity, like a corporation. Of course. Right? Um, or a partnership. And it is, it is funny that there's one body of literature that the, the inside of a firm is actually the opposite of a market. Mm. That's how yeah. that literature talks about it. This is uh, coast, indeed right? Indeed, it is the dividing line between the inside and the outside of the firm. Right. Is outside the firm is where you do market transacting, mm-hmm. and inside the firm is where you do fiat orders from right. the entrepreneur who's in charge. Right. Uh, and so it is. It's just amusing to mm-hmm. you know. It's all you can use language in lots of ways, yeah. and you one hopes that uh, there's a benefit. I saw that. In reading the paper, I felt that there was a benefit in saying we can use the word market to talk about all these things when we're talking about people who are participants in the institution using power and they have to decide what constitutes power, how much of it you have, how it works in the decision-making process that you're engaged in. Is it dollars? Is it votes? Is it something else? Uh, but to talk about that intra-institution process and call it a market uh, is helps you see things that you mm-hmm. wouldn't otherwise see yeah I, I hope so and and it's also um, we're kind of getting at the the more abstract and deeper parts of the theory and um, here and so you know there, it, it may be easier to latch on to the examples which I'm sure we'll turn to in a second but like the you know part of the project here is to de-reify the notion of markets the markets just are one kind of thing and then like families and governments and things which work by votes, those are just different kinds of things. And so if you see something called a market, you say, oh, well, of course it should operate like this because that's the way markets are. But you haven't really made an argument there, right? You've just kind of observed – you've just right, put a label right. to it and now you're saying, oh, well, it's OK that people act in a very self-interested way and we don't redistribute much because that's a market, right? Um, there are all kinds of arguments that you should redistribute. You know, but, but one thing I'm trying to do here is to say these are um, – these are variations on the same theme. They have different um, they have different allocations of power, uh, different representations of that power. In a lot of markets, it's like dollars or some kind of uh, ordinary currency. In others, it may be votes or it may be other sorts of things or other kind of harder to see things, the things which you'd have to maybe model instead. Right. Um, but all of these decision-making forms are meant to advance some kind of human purposes. And so the ultimate standard here is do they advance those purposes like they're all means they are not ends in of in and of themselves and so are these good means for achieving whatever those purposes might be so one thing i wanted to ask you about actually before talking about the examples in the paper um is uh, a, a, a another instance where we see uh, people maybe some people uh rec- maybe recoiling a little bit or reacting negatively to a little bit to, to a particular set of circumstances uh, that we that we might think of as being market-oriented, but, but then another value intrudes. So think about um, a, a, a big and sudden storm mm-hmm. and think about some particular retailer that happens to have just received before the storm a very large shipment of bottled water, right? Uh, or some other thing that people need a lot of very quickly uh, after the storm passes, right? So, and there are state statutes about some of this stuff to sort of regulate the the problem that that uh, often goes by the phrase price gouging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that sort of idea that uh, in the, in the regular in regular life, uh, the the way 
people set prices for bottles of water as a seller or a buyer, like how much do I want for it? How much am I willing to pay for it? Uh, it's constrained by lots of things. What other things could I buy instead? Who else is offering water? <laughs> Who else right, is offering right. the other things I might use instead? Right. How much money do I have to play around with? How much do you have to play around with as a relayer? Uh, suddenly there's this big supply shock right. and a big demand shock. And so the, the regular way of coping with stuff is sort of gets thrown out the window. Right. And on the one hand, uh, a retailer might say, well, look, the way stuff works is I get to decide how much I want you to pay me for it. And it's up to you to decide whether you want to pay me that or not. Right. And so I want a hundred dollars for the bottle of water and you can either pay me that or you can get out of the way. And the guy behind you who is willing to pay me the hundred dollars is going to pay me the hundred dollars, and that may be the market clearing price, meaning the so under this circumstance right, the, the, where there's this right. sudden demand shock and supply shock, uh, then there is this price shock, right? And because uh, at that price you'll sell out, you know that's the idea of the market clearing price, right? It's the, that that highest price at which you will sell all of your supply. Sure, and it could be a hundred or it could be one. Yeah, it just depends on all the other facts all the that other surround facts. whether or right. not you're engaging in that uh, transaction. So, so I'm I'm curious to know what you how you would talk about. The fact that we we have a circumstance where we've got conventional sort of market values. Uh, hey, it's just about how we figure out how much water we need and what people are willing to pay for it in the normal course. And values of things like, you know, people need water to survive. And right. it seems unfair to – profit wildly from the desperate need of a person for water right after the storm, right? right. Uh, what, what is your reaction yeah, to so, the, so the to price go, gouging scenario? Yeah, to, just to go back a little bit, I think that, you know, there are different ways of looking at that problem and some of them are, are kind of more descriptive and some are more normative. So, I, you know, the um, from like a rational actor model, the very simplistic law and economics model, you would observe that the rational seller will increase the price up to that market clearing price. So maybe the bottles of water will go up to $100. And, and other people say that's unfair. It's not, that's not necessarily an efficiency critique, it's, but it's a critique of the situation. Um, but then the kind of the second order effect that like a hard-nosed law and economist committed to the rational actor model might say is, well, if you raise the price, it encourages other people from the outside to increase the supply of water, right? Well, of and course so, it does. So if you if you cap prices, you're not going to get as much water ultimately to, as you would if you allow for prices to be higher. Of course, so, the, the sir reply is that uh, it's not as if other people can't see the storm and right. it's not as if water isn't on the way from other places. The issue isn't whether it will come. The issue is that it isn't there yet. Well, you know, uh, the, so there's lots right. of disaster relief and other things that get new resources into an area. It just takes right. time. No, the claim would be that more the, the the higher the price that you think you can get, the more water will be on the way. Right? right. Because it's you know, if if I'm far away and it would uh, not ordinarily be profitable to send water somewhere, but I know that the prices will be higher for a period, it may be right. may be profitable. So, so that's kind of but, just standard uh, kind of transaction cost yeah, economics. But what I was saying is what I was saying is we, that 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 is a that uh the, the hard-nosed observation is implicitly asserting that the only thing we're relying on is the price mechanism. Yeah. When in fact, socially, we don't just rely on the price so mechanism. So I was going to say that the um, another view is, is to take, instead of you know, the rational actor, behavioral actor, this is the behavioral law in economics. And as you probably know, there's uh, um, some literature on the idea of reference prices. 
that people have a certain idea about how much things should cost or how certain transactions should go. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could call them reference transactions and reference prices is probably the better way to say it. So reference transactions. And when one departs from that, other people get mad, right? Um, if, if you have in your head that there is a reference transaction. So this is like, you know, I think that um, bottles of water should cost a dollar. And if I see them costing $100, I see someone behaving badly, yeah. right? Um, and, and one reason to think that they should cost a dollar today is that they cost a dollar yesterday. Right. So I know that that's what you, seller, paid to get it. Right. To be able to sell it to me. So this seems like a windfall to you at my right. at my misfortune. Which explains some of the um, weirdness in, say, pricing for concert tickets, where if uh, I know that, say, I've got a popular rock band or something like that, and I've got a 20,000-seat arena, I know I could sell it out at, you know, at $700 a seat. Um. But I also know there's probably going to be bad press over the price of the tickets, and I don't want, <laughs> I don't want all the press to be about the price of the tickets. Um, so I sell them for $100 a piece, still make some profit, even though I know that the very next day, you know, on StubHub or some other places, you know, they're going to be sold at a much higher price. In other words, they're going to be middlemen who kind of come in right. as best they can uh, to, um, to kind of adjust the price of those tickets to the true price. The middlemen take all, the, all that extra profit. So why does that happen? Why don't, why don't they price it the market clearing price for concert tickets. And I'm sure there's like a lot of great more recent economic literature on this than I've read. Um, uh, but um, the behavioral view of it is that there's this kind of reference transaction that we have. And that, you know, so, so when – And so they have a longer term. Since they're repeat players, they have a longer term <coughs> incentive not to be seen as price gougers. I don't know if you remember. Like remember when – like I think it was a couple decades ago when the Eagles went on concert and they had these at the time kind of insanely high-priced tickets – and there was – I just remember some news articles about oh, it. Oh, sure. Like a lot of like talk about it. Like this is – these guys are like cashing in right. and greedy and everything even though the price – unless you've got a ticket early, the price would rise to the um, to the price they would have been able to charge. And if you hold on to your ticket, having bought at a lower price, you basically are paying an opportunity cost, the price of the higher ticket. Um you know, if you buy it for 100 but it goes for 700 and you don't sell it, you're giving up $600. And that's another, you know, the behavioral law and economics has another explanation for how why we right. treat, you know, received income differently than opportunity income. All right, that's all. This is all by way of, of background as to how other people have seen this. Um, and I guess I, I don't think any of those is, is wrong. Each of them is a way of viewing a social situation and trying to observe some truth in it. And what I would say is that um, – Again, markets have purposes. Institutions have purposes. And um, creating a system uh, where we have contract rules which promote exchange and drive towards uh, – which drives toward efficiency but with some other values. We have lots of rules in contract law which are not just about efficiency. True. Um, so the, the kind of complex but you know, efficiency-including theory of, of contract is meant to deliver a certain kind of – Social decision, basically how many bottles of water and to whom. Just like in the paper, I talk about like, you know, we've got a decision. How many TVs should we make? And right. How many sh- cars? How many should get them? Yeah. Right? Just any consumer, basic consumer goods and services right. offered in normal times. Right. When one of the things that can happen with the use of the price mechanism is that running out of things a little bit today at, at price X might induce you to charge price X plus one tomorrow to get a little bit more. Right. Uh, of those things available, right. right? The price mechanism as a thing that helps over a, some period of time get enough of the stuff we want and not too much of the stuff we want in the hands of the people who want it. 
right? Uh, that all works pretty well, and we use it for lots and lots of things, lots of consumer goods and services. Uh, so that would be the normal thing for water, right? Right. Um, and then what's next in the fact that we wake up in this storm, and so we're in the middle of this new social situation. What, when, when there are price gouging prohibition statutes, which there are in many states, right? Um, what is the law trying to do there? Is it trying to isolate the normal market from some other mechanism or in the way that you think about in this paper or is it an entirely different kind of phenomenon? Well, I think it's trying to affect the – it's trying to change the nature of the decision-making institution by directly affecting the social rules that apply to use of power. But let's only back up there, right? So um, uh, um, as you said, like the normal treatment of water is you charge what you want and there gets to be an equilibrium price or thereabouts. And if you find out a good way to bring people water, you'll be able to make a little bit more profit and that's an incentive to do so. And you can take those profits and and you can use them in other markets, right? So you can use them to – buy TVs or to buy cars. And so all of these markets are connected through the use of money, right? So if you yeah. um, if you don't buy a car, you can buy a TV. If you make money selling cars, you can use it to uh, buy TVs. But you can imagine a world where all of these are separate, right? And we, we, we decide, we, we make together the social decision about how many cars into whom and how many TVs into whom and how much bottled water into whom um, by other means, which are disconnected. You can imagine a world of television coupons, where everybody's issued a certain number of coupons to buy televisions and a certain number of uh, rewards that can be used in various ways if you produce televisions. Right. And you can imagine a world where where there are separate um, water coupons and separate um, car coupons and of prohibition against exchange. So you can't exchange one for the other, right? Um, and here it would be obvious that the currency that one uses to acquire televisions is different from the currency used to buy cars. And there's a prohibition on exchange of those two currencies, right? And, you know, it's almost like you have euros and dollars, but there's a prohibition on exchanging euros for dollars, in which case you can buy euro stuff with euros and dollar stuff with dollars, but you can't really right. interchange. And, but, you'd only, and you'd only do that if you thought that for, for reasons that would, you'd have to explore, I guess, to understand it fully. But you'd only do that if you thought there was something distorting about the car exchange right. um, by letting it get affected by the TV exchange. Right. And 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 we in normal times we don't right so the production of cars is kind of tied to the production of TVs right there are only so many resources and and, and yeah. jobs in the world and so more TV production may come at the expense of some car production or at the expense of other things in the economy right. that are ultimately connected together and um, so there uh, and so, you might even say gosh it's a good thing they're tied together because right. given that we can't make all the physical things that you can possibly list right. <laughs> to at every quantity right. that you could possibly name, uh, we're going to have to make some allocation decisions. Right. And that ought to include the sorts of preferences people have for those things uh, as against some other things. Right. Um, and so- Or if we had separate TV coupons and car coupons and they couldn't be exchanged in any way, then people would express their preference. Boy, I wish my TV coupon bought bigger TVs, right? And you'd have to, you'd, or you'd have to <laughs> right. like argue about. Or I like, wish there were more of these car coupons, right? Or something, right? right. Or, and, and then and you'd have a process have, for doing that. We'd have a national conversation about, right. like, you know, there, we don't need so many cars; we need more TVs or something along. You know, this is right. a very simplified, stylized example, right. obviously. Right? Although, you know, for if you think about, uh, in a way, you think about something like the NHS in in uh, 
Britain for healthcare, right? That that is a, yes. a a social decision about the way to allocate healthcare services, right? And that it shouldn't be the way you allocate TVs and cars, right? Uh, and there are all kinds of good reasons why, according to the people who advocate for that, uh, as and there are also, of course, good reasons according to the people who advocate for things like a private insurance market, right? Uh, that's subsidized in particular ways or not subsidized in particular ways. So. This it sounds fanciful TV coupons, but but in fact there are other things that we're mm-hmm. very familiar with that do work that way, right? Uh, but uh, the uh, well, public how many public highways and where, how many roads and where, right? right. I mean, this is a decision or, we make, or you know, the, the democratically and or technocratically through agency healthcare for veterans, right? right? Through the VA, that's an that is a right. uh, that is like the NHS, but it's just right. for veterans here in the United States. So, but uh, but then the question is like, why you know? So I have dollars that I use to buy TVs, right? And um, uh, because I can also use dollars to buy cars, and I can make money from selling TVs, and I can make dollars from selling cars. Like these are connected in the lowest transaction cost style way you can imagine, right? I can take my TV power and use it as car power, and I can yeah. do it directly because it's the same representation of power in each. Whereas if I want to affect the road car, car buying power, right? Car buying or car selling, right? I mean, just the the power within that market to make that decision. So the the claim, the the, the, oh, ah, okay. the overriding model here, right, is that there is a social decision about how many cars to make and to whom, and we use the market mechanism, which is this exchange based mechanism, in right. order to do it for producing and right. allocating, and we choose to and we choose to um, put that power to represent that power with some kind of currency, and we make it the same currencies we make for other kinds of connected right. markets, right? Whereas if you say, you know what, I really wish we had more roads um, here, right? But the way we make the decision about where we put the roads, let's just say it's through, just to stylize it a little bit to make it easier, let's just say it's a legislature that votes for it, even though it's probably some agency acting under some legislative authority, but same deal. Um, and so if you want roads, you need more legislative votes, right? And and yeah. those... And, and legislatures typically work where the, the currency of power is a vote and um, they make a decision. Whichever, you know, whichever uh, um, option gets the most votes is usually the winner. And then at the end of that decision, um, all the votes are confiscated and then redistributed equally again. So it's, <laughs> I mean, it's like it's, it's, it's as though uh, it's, it's a perfectly redistributive system, right, uh, um, where equality is highly prized. But yeah, this while, is, the, this is yeah. the word – your use of the word redistribution to describe that phenomenon is the weirdest use of language in the whole paper. I think. <laughs> it's, the, it's the most oddly yeah. potentially misleading right, though, or confounding. It? Huh? It's right though. Well, it is, it is right when I, when, when I read the words in the way you tell me to read them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a very jarring use of – because uh, people usually think of redistribution as a thing that relates to the currency we call money. Yes. Right. And and you just did it with reference to the a currency like votes. Right. Uh, and so right. It's, and it's also not what we typically think of as redistribution. Um, it's not a power on a one shot decision. Well, and then it getting is, set right. back to unused at, after the last decision. So it's, well, a, it's a very bizarre. It's a use mechanism. Of the word. It's a mechanism by which for each decision you have a perfectly egalitarian method of decision-making. Yeah, we all have one vote. Right. And, and, and we get to vote that's on that thing, for, and then insured, we get to vote on the next right. thing. That's insured for each decision all right. the time. You can imagine the legislature working differently, and this is why I introduced this Indeed. example, where, you, say, at the beginning of the term, you distribute to each legislature, legislator 5,000 votes, yeah. which they can then use on any particular decision they I want I remember to. Merlin Mann having, on, on one uh, of his 
thing somewhere at one point, and I think it was even someone else's idea that he was sort of stylizing and talking about, where you would get a bag of tokens for the ability to invoke meetings. <laughs> and you could, and it had like the number of minutes of oh, wow. a meeting. Yeah. And I you could, so depending on how many people you wanted at the meeting, yeah. and depending on how many minutes you wanted the meeting to last, yeah. you would run out of your tokens pretty fast if you're like, everybody at the meeting for an hour. That, right. Like, that could be your whole year's worth of meetingness, right? Right. That's ex- the example I thought of as soon as I read that. Like, yeah, you're right. You could, it could, you could set up uh, the the currency distribution and uh, and therefore the sorts of decisions that institution yeah. could make quite differently. Yeah, basically uh, trying to internalize the the social loss caused by meetings onto uh, exactly. the individual, but or yeah. rank choice voting in terms of yeah. voting among a number of candidates in a crowded field of candidates right. for primary votes. Right, right? You're, it's not uh, you don't just have one vote. You get to pick one and only one person. You you get to put them all in order, right? Uh, so you have as many votes as there are people. Uh, in some corporate board contexts, there's a thing called cumulative voting. Mm-hmm. So you've got the same number of votes as you have shares. Yes. So if you own more shares, you have more votes. Yeah. Uh, so there's all sorts of fun ways. That- there's some homeowners associations which you know work not by you know, one homeowner, one vote, although I think some many places require that. It's been a little while since I've really focused on right. this. But, uh, but you know, you can imagine, you know, acreage like, be property or value, value or whatever, yeah, right? You, right. Yeah. Uh, um, and and, and it, that is a really that, – that is by itself a fun thing to think about in terms of institutional design. Right. You can point to real-world examples where all these different variations are used – and why are they used? Because they better help the institution in question right. get to decisions of the sort it's trying to make. Right. So the people who are designing it say, let's do it this way. So, so yeah, I'm pointing toward legislatures because we have a sense of, well, these are always, these always work the same way. You know, we, you, we always have an equal number of votes for each decision. Each, you know, each discrete decision we have completely um, distributed in an egalitarian, completely egalitarian <laughs> way, the votes. And I just point out that that could work otherwise. That's a design decision about how to allocate power. And it's a design decision about how to distribute that power on an ongoing basis, which means to redistribute it. How do once distributed, right? And once discharged, how do we redistribute it? And and we provide an answer there for legislatures, but it could be otherwise, and it may well should be otherwise. Sometimes, as you yeah. point out in certain corporate forms. It so is, when so. you come back to price gouging after the storm, right? Mm-hmm. And and you, you're you're saying in that provision um, that that although in the normal state of affairs, it's okay for you to charge what you want and for them to pay it if they'd like to or not pay it if they don't want right. to. Um, because it gets – because it's connected to all other markets through dollars, right. it, 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 it may be – it may be, you know, the best way that we know um, – Again, you know, depending on how dollars are redistributed, that's a broader question across all markets. But anyway, it may be a pretty good way of figuring out uh, how much water and to whom because – you know, if we're producing too much water, the price falls and, and people make, you know, through the spending of currency, make certain decisions about that. So ordinarily, connecting it with all other goods is a way of kind of trading right. off how much water yeah. in relation to other goods. And and the price gouging statute says after the storm, we're what? Disconnecting it from all mm-hmm. those other markets, at least temporarily. Yeah. And you can imagine like one response. And we'll get to your price cap thing in a second. But like one response would be, oh, my God, the storm's hit. There's a real humanitarian crisis here. Uh, we're going to be distributing water. Um, uh, if you have if you have water, you can't just sell it for any price. It has to be distributed centrally or something. And everyone has water coupons. 
or the like, right? Or there's a certain time we're distributing, one per family or something like that. So we've shifted. We have the, it's the same good, the same decision. How right? to how to distribute the how water. much water and to whom, right? right. Um, but we're making it in a different way because we now have a very different purpose, right? And that purpose is how to distribute uh, a life-saving resource in a time of severe scarcity, where life and death is at stake. We're ordinarily in the distribution of of say bottled water or something like that, and we'll leave aside whether there should even be bottled water, Joe. That's a. It's more of a climate change. You're saying thing. in normal times. In normal right? times, we you can understand why there's bottled water in terms of disaster relief. Yes, because a regular water provision system right. has become incapacitated. Right, 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 right. And you want to make sure you're giving people water that's safe right. to drink because it's a different decision, right? It's a right. different. It's a different context in which Quite. the decision has a different social meaning to it. Yeah. Right. And and so um, uh, so we shift right to a different model of power, and that model of power, I've, I kind of distinguish between currency. Which is a either a a self conscious meaning the institution itself understand you know knows about the unit of power that it's um, uh, that it's creating so dollars or votes or coupons or something like that um, and then social rules which is like how do you use that currency and 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 power probably power is as I see it like a you observe it by observing the combination of currency with rules mm. right. So how many votes does it take? Is it a threshold decision that most votes wins or is it like more scalar? Uh, is it uh, um, you have to meet a certain – is it an auction or is it um, an ongoing exchange kind of thing with dollars? So there are different kinds of social rules that can relate to the currency which together define kind of the power distribution and how, and how it's used. And and so um, you know we could easily switch to water coupons, in which case we've now we're, you can't use dollars for this thing anymore. We're going to use currency, right? And the, uh, we're going to use I'm sorry, we're going to use coupons as the currency. And the rule is one coupon per session of water distribution right. or something. So now, now getting that up and yeah. running in the in the wake of a storm, if it hadn't been set up already, that sounds a little challenging. Mm-hmm. So I guess you might as instead instantiate a sort of a price cap, right? That. Uh, that you can be punished for violating if we find in the wake of the storm you were charging people more than 125% of what you had been charging them the day before the storm. And that's kind of the harder example, I think, because it it, it looks like it's just a regulation of the existing market. Like all we've done is kind of put a price cap on the existing system, which is what we've done. Whereas with the coupon thing, it looks like we're doing something very different, right, Right. for different purposes. And we're – forbidding exchange between the coupons and dollars and we're doing it because we want you know, we have you know we want to protect every life every life is worth an equal amount no matter how you know rich you are or poor you are you know that's kind of the idea that goes into these life-saving situations right and and so um uh but the but the and, and so it's obvious there that what we've done is what i call segregating the markets right we've segregated the water distribution market from other markets which are driven by ordinary exchange and dollars right we've um and we've done it for a reason because Ordinary market exchange and price mechanisms, which served efficiently to allocate things, if, if they do that, certainly don't do it now that we are in a life and death situation with water. Um, but the observation is that price caps can also do that. If you make the price cap low enough so that people, although poor people will have a hard time paying, like the, the price for water is no longer the price of life and death, right? So if, if water is like you know $3 a quart, Maybe that's more than it normally is and enough to induce maybe people to send a little bit more water our way. Even if people need that in- inducement, it's not clear that actually people need inducement to send water to people who are going to die. 
Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, yeah, that but, we've got whole public machinery involved in disaster right. relief. But supposing you did, but you know, it can be things like plywood and these. You know, there are all kinds oh. of like price gouging, like, all kinds of instances of price gouging which go on in these disaster yeah. zones where well, you yeah, want and that people, could be pre-storm yeah. price gouging, like what, right. <laughs> plywood before once the weather service says there is a storm coming. Right. right? Um, so. Uh, so you see price gouging, uh, price caps, anti-gouging price cap statutes mm-hmm. are a form of the segregation of markets. Yes. I mean, it, I think it is. Because but it's, it, te- it's temporarily limited. Right. Because it's, it's, they apply only when you're in this uh, unusual storm or crisis situation. Right. right. And it, it, what it just does is it reveals that the um, – it, it reveals something we don't normally see, which is that the, the – what we think of as the ordinary market mechanism, and I'm pushing back against the idea that there's anything ordinary. There's stitching a bunch of things together for purposes, right? But it reveals that as contingent on social purpose. And when the social purpose sharply de- deviates from the, you know, when the purpose of water distribution and the ideal be- ideals behind that differ begin to differ sharply for reasons from car or TV distribution. We may wall it off or, or tax transfers between the two markets and, uh, right. and have different social rules. The example I give in the paper is one uh, – is the surrogate mother um, issue, right, where right. Um, this is the – um, a lot of people wanted to some, – some states have, I think, banned surrogacy contracts. Um, some don't. I mean, uh, Richard Posner famously said there's nothing wrong with it at all. It should just be a market, which, you know, will induce people to be surrogates and uh, if they if they are otherwise inclined to be. And, well, you know, so this is the whole you, you, I mean, you know, the efficiency story here. Right. Right. And um, so some states have said that you can surrogacy can be OK, but that the compensation for to the surrogate can only be that compensatory. It cannot be uh, more than is needed to compensate the surrogate for. Uh, for her expenses. And um, I don't know how they calculate all of those things. Um, But that number is low enough so that um, uh, the the price mechanism won't kind of alter the supply in a way. In other words, you you wouldn't be a surrogate if you didn't have some other reason if all you could get for it is merely compensatory. If it were actually doing the law which restricted the payments to be compensatory, were actually doing what they wanted to do. And I have no idea. They may be enough. then like no one would do it if they didn't have some other reason because you're making basically no profit from Whereas it. if you let it simply be, you know, well, you can give someone whatever you can pay right, uh, and that they'll accept, uh, you might think, ah, this is going to induce a lot of people to enter the market in supplying surrogacy services who would not otherwise be interested in doing so. Right. Uh, and that might cause you some social concern. Right. So, you, um, pay, you know, if you pay $100,000 rather than, say, two or $3,000 to a surrogate um, – then you know it may be two or three thousand dollars worth of extra expenses and uh, maybe time off of other kinds of work and um, uh, the some health risk changing a diet and yeah and to pay for a little bit of risk like all of that but if you can pay more than that then you can induce other people to enter the market who wouldn't do it for a kind of uh, beneficent reason and that's kind of what a lot of these jurisdictions want is just kind of this kind of like uh, donative intent to control right. rather than. And I think this is less – it sounds less pressing to me in the context of surrogacy uh, than in the context of egg donation. Mm. Uh, But uh, where the same – some of the same concerns and some of the same uh, responses are encountered, right? Yeah. We we will pay you the fees related to 
getting the drug and going to the doctor who's going to harvest the eggs and right. blah, 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 but but not the dollar values way in excess of right. that right um and, and and i'm not saying anything about the reasons why you might have that view at least right now i'll, I'll talk about that in just maybe one second um it's just if if the state has that view that it wants the the kind of donative intent rather than monetary intent to control then the way you do that is is you you could create you know coupons or you could do something else or you could maybe, uh, but i think that in fairness they want this kind of compensatory payment to exist but no more right and, and um so why might you do this uh, or why might a state want this? Well, you know, as you know, Margaret Radin has this great article, Market and Alienability, right, which talks about, um, among other things, when um, – what, what are some of the reasons why we want – we don't want to allow transactions, why we want to create – why we want to make some entitlements inalienable, like, you know, sexual services or – uh, or surrogacy, or, right. um, uh, or so that they or aren't commodities, right? Like so, bread or water right. or whatever. So I'm not thinking to myself, you know, maybe I should sell my, you know, maybe I should donate my kidney because donation really means sale, and I can make a lot more money, and I'd rather have TVs than an extra kidney or something right. like that, right? Um, <laughs> and, and and you can imagine uh, um, the kidney market being seamlessly connect, connected to all other markets through dollars, and yep. yeah. including the car market and the TV market right. and the and the bottle of water market, right? Because um, it's just another thing that right. we just want to make sure we've got enough of and not too many and roughly over a course of time, right. things will equilibrate and we'll get about what we need. And she, and she gives a number of reasons. I think there are three big reasons, but she gives a number of reasons why a state might want to enact like non-commodification non rules. Like why might you want to permit pro, – uh, why, why might you want to prevent um, uh, markets from arising? And one of those is I think the um, the kind of – obvious first step, which is that you want to um, protect against um, exploitation, um, you know, of the very poor. Like, so this is like anti-prostitution. One concern is that, is that um, basically, and I think her focus is on especially women who are prostitutes being coerced into, right. you know, sexual services. And you can imagine that also with kidneys and organs and other things as well. Um, and she also points out that, well, if that's the issue, then you then you also also should have favor like highly redistributive rules, right? Because right. if the issue is they can be coerced, then the underlying issue is they don't have enough money, right? And, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the third, uh, the, the last of the points that she makes, it, I think, is one of the more interesting ones, is that sometimes um, we highly value for human and social reasons our non commodified relationships with some things, right? Um, and so consider one's relationship to one's children. Right. The fact that um, I didn't have to pay anything for my kids and I'm not and I can't possibly sell them. Right. Um, uh, or um, I maybe in a state I can't buy and sell buy and sell sex. Um, but nonetheless, people have sexual relationships with their intimate partners. Right. Um, but but that's not a thing that can be bought or sold. Um, uh, sometimes it's like really important that we kind of have things that we don't sell. Okay, um, because the relationships themselves are very important, and and there are certain circumstances where maintaining the nature of those non-commodified relationships just can't practically exist alongside com a commodified version of the same thing. And so, uh, her example, like you know, imagine that there were a free market in babies, um, totally free market where there would be advertising and everything like that, right? And and so there's advertising for, you know, here's how much for 
a kid with a certain IQ or with uh, you know certain color hair, male uh, or female, all these things, right? I right. mean, it's it's like buying any other kind of commodity, and the more right. com- yeah, and people would offer various mixes of features, right. and they accentuate some features over other features. So. Much as they do with other commodities. Is my TV this big or that big? Is my right. car this color or that color? And, and her observation, which You would expect people the, to do the same with the babies. Which has stuck with me for a long time. Is like, you know, just like think it. You know, this is not just analytical. Think at an individual level. Try to role play here. What would it be like to be with and raise your own kids in such an environment? Like, would you be able to avoid seeing certain attributes of them and thinking to yourself about what the advertisements say? Right. You know, oh, my kid has brown hair. I know that blonde hair goes for a lot more money or something like that. I mean, you know, they're right. obviously very troubling yeah. ethnic and racial issues here as well. Right. And uh, so the, the existence of a, a, a commodity market in X uh, changes the context of how you experience X, even when you got a version of it that wasn't commodified. Right. And you might have real concerns about letting a market context grow up around that right. thing. And the way that it affects your interactions with it or your life with it or your relation to it right. uh, in a non-market or non-commodified. Right. And she calls this the domino theory, right? Yeah. That, yeah, and and the mechanism by which it works is mainly market rhetoric, right? The, just the pro, the profundity of uh, – um, that's probably the wrong word, right? I'm thinking of uh, – <coughs> And not, it's more than rhetoric. It's a reality. It would be a reality. Yes. That in that alternate world, you, you really – if you had a baby – other than by purchasing it, you would be able to see what you had and right. compare it to the world you right. could have had if you'd bought right. one instead. I mean, that would be like building a car versus buying a car. So I think what's going on there, right, is that um, uh, we have this non-commodified thing, which we think is important for various reasons. You could have different um, philosophical arguments and, and maybe religious and moral arguments for why you want a uh, why you want a certain kind of relationship, which is not um, itself compatible with like buying and selling. But why can't you also have this other market for people who do want to buy and sell the same thing, right? So I understand that you and your spouse want to have uh, sex and you don't want to pay each other for it. And that's important to you. That's fine. But why can't other people buy and sell sex? Because that's important to them, right? That would be kind of the argument, right? Like live and let live. And so the, the argument here is that if in this other market for the very same thing, where there is lots of advertising and market rhetoric, like it's just not going to be possible for that not to have an influence on the non-commodified market. And so in my language, the language in the paper, I talk about how when we set up these institutions with these power structures, an awful lot of the time, maybe almost all the time, there may be other people outside of that power structure who are very interested in how that power is used and how the decision is made. Think about lobbyists and legislatures, right? (coughs) Bless you. Thank you. Legislators have one vote, right? Lobbyists are very interested in how those are spent. They're usually agents of other people who are interested. Right. And so there's oftentimes another market. A secondary influence market. Which is secondary to that market, which is intended to influence how the decisions are made. Right? Yeah. So, um, uh, and, and so um, in elections, you know, we all go out and vote. There's a very obvious secondary influence market of campaigning. Right. And right. campaign finance reform is all about like reforming the, the inner workings and power structures of that secondary influence market. And if you listen to some people in our – a political life and a, a sort of a dystopia they depict as almost maybe existing already, um, the secondary market and the primary market have collapsed into each other. 
right? right. So dominant is the secondary influence market that it's basically steamrolled over yeah. the primary market. And as you see, and I've got a chart. Basi- yeah, I've got a chart in the paper basically trying to make that point, right? And um, it's interesting because, like the um, the political science literature I read about campaigning paints a very bleak picture about whether actually spending money on campaigning does any good at all. Right. Uh, and, and Which some, is sort of coming at it from the opposite. Yeah. To, there's a bunch of foolish spending on secondary influence. Right. But, um, I also got an email from um, a writer that I cite in the um, in, in the piece. Um, it's a really interesting thing on the, on the sports side who kind of questions whether I've been too credulous about UEFA's aims in the financial fair play. And again, for both of these, my um, I'll just say this. My point was not to suggest that there were pure motives. Right. Right. Um, or that um, either was effective. It's just that like these are systems set up to stop the flow of money into actually choosing elections. And, and as you know, said it, before, right. once you identify the purpose of the cooperation and therefore the power mechanisms and rules that you want to set up to get to the decisions, yeah. you can also identify things that are inconsistent with that purpose. Right. And try to keep it from interfering with the proper operation of the market right. as you've established it, the institution as you've established it. And you can model the expected evolution of the system under the power structures and rules that you've created to see whether or not they're serving your purpose well. So you can be consequentialist about it. This doesn't imply that you have to, you know. Sure. But um, so I'll just say with the market rhetoric stuff, uh, um, I think the claim here is that if you set up, say, let's just do sexual services in a, in a society where you want a lot of non-commodified sexual relationships, but also people who are like live and let live. Why don't we also have prostitution? Um, the concern here is that uh, if we have that commodified sex, there will be all kinds of advertising and everything else. And it will be very difficult for that those influences not to spill over into the non-commodified market, right, which operates with a very different kind of power structure, right? right? Um, same thing with kids, right? Um, you kind of take what you get through the uh, – well, I, I don't know if I'm going to go into all that. But I'll, I'll just say that um, uh, you know, you have all this effort in the secondary influence market to to affect the spending of power within the commodified market. But it will – you know, it's the very same message that will affect how people see um, uh, what they're getting in the non-commodified market and will tend to try to yoke their preferences toward the commodified one. And so they'll start to see – sex in the non-commodified market in more commodified terms. And and we'll start to see the power that they have in the commodified market. Right. It's like, why can't I have that same power in the non-commodified market, right? right. And you, of course, you, I, I, well, of course, I, I mean, it seems to me that you might say, well, you, you'll only be bothered by that uh, in proportion to the value you see in the non-commodified version being separate from and important in a way different from the values in the commodified right. one, right? Right. That it sort of presupposes that you really think there are very different purposes right. to be achieved, which speak to a different set of values you have. Right. Um, the fact that it's non-commodified, which just means that it's not connected to all of the other price govern systems. Of which TVs are, are and cars class, and right, bottled yeah, water, yeah. That's kind of what we mean. Um, the fact that it's not connect- connected is some very strong evidence that we do, in fact, have other purposes there. Right, because if we didn't, like it would probably, you know, be eaten up by the yeah. by the rest of the system. So, in, you know, in marriages, right, we we have a, you know, there is a system. It's not as though money is irrelevant, and other forms of power aren't relevant. But they, you know, you you can't. Um, what can you? Can you? I guess you can't contract to get married, can you? Uh, hmm. But it's, it's, it wouldn't be enforceable, would it? I think that's the issue, right? Not you. you certainly. You, that's what I mean by "can you." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Then it, I think no, yeah. you can't make an enforceable promise to 
uh, to marry somebody else. Although there's all this uh, engagement ring litigation, isn't there? That's yeah, sort yeah, of a yeah. proxy for. Yeah. This seems like a good Anthony Christ thing to, you know, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he has a, uh, I'm sure he already knows a, a bunch of stuff he could say yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm also thinking like, you know, could you auction yourself off to like seven suitors and get married to the one who gives you the most money? I don't know. I don't, mm. yeah, that's, like, this like, is I, right out of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, there, you know, th- there's a reason why we want people's decision. And, and it didn't all, you know, there used to be a very different system, right? I mean, dowries and everything else. Right. Very, very much about like. Exactly. Yeah, yeah these so. things aren't static, right? No. The, uh, our view of companionate marriage and. Right. Well, your example that, of the water bottles is not static, right? That's an example true. of dynamic change. Um, so one thing that's helpful, I think, about the institutional approach and thinking about the insights you get when you when you think through things in the way that the paper does, whether it's how should people be able to pay for the total number of players they have on their football team in Europe? Or how should people be able to uh, uh, appeal to voters in an election campaign? Um, is it, it gets you to focus more on uh, the purposes of the cooperation. Right. And it gets you to focus on how, therefore, do I want to design how things go uh, with an eye on those purposes knowing that I have a range of different ways to do that. Right. Uh, and I can look at all these other ways of of creating a unit of power and using a unit of power mm-hmm. um, and think to myself, well, maybe that's the appropriate thing here. Or maybe it's the opposite of the appropriate thing here, in which right. case I want to wall it off from right. those other things. Or no, well, actually, the one here and the one there are roughly the same. We can just let all this slosh around. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter, right? right? Because it's not going to be a bad effect. Um, thinking in terms of purposes and in terms of institutional design, if you can be more mindful of that, it might help you, among other things, get more of the purposes you would like to to better achieve the purposes you're trying to achieve. Yeah, feeling a little rusty here. No, it's okay, I, and I, th- I think that's th- that is a big. I mean, a huge part of this, and and what kind of makes it another wing in the larger project that I have here, yes. right? Is, is that it is um, it. It proposes a more general way of seeing social reality that reveals choices that we, in fact, are making that we don't – we oftentimes don't conceive as choices. Yes. Right. And, and to the degree that we don't conceive them as choices, they actually aren't. Right. <laughs> um, well, but but right. we could turn them into choices again right. by reconnecting to the extent to which we have agency if we would only pick it up right. and use it. Right. Over yeah. this context. Whether you call them choices, like there are responsibility, right? We, we have but, responsibility for right. the evolutions of social reality, um, uh, even if we don't perceive the fact that we had a choice that, you know, where that responsibility could yeah. have been exercised differently. Let me just say, like, this project started in a very simple place. Um, and so, like, this is our want, right? Let's get to the simplest stuff and, oh. at the very end. Right. Um, but <laughs> um, because, you know, I, I noticed that. Um, campaign finance reform had kind of similar kind. It had a similar kind of effort and raison d'être. Is that did I say that correctly? You, you oui, oui. Yeah, um, and similar critiques. Like people who push back were making similar right. arguments. As this is the, the sort of the black market problem and the incumbent yeah, protection problem. As the European yeah. football stuff, right? So right. European football 
Um, so there's a free market for players. Basically, I'm going to simplify stuff a lot here. You can read the paper to read more, but like right. uh, uh, much more than in American sports. So the teams are kind of like separate business entities in a way. They Each asso- one. Yeah, they associate yeah. together for purposes of competition. Those associations will have some rules to try to keep the teams in check. But the teams like, well, you know, there's a pretty free market for players. And so if they want a player, you, you go out and you buy the player, which means either you, you have to strike a deal both with the player. And if the player is already contracted with another club, that, you've got you to deal the, with that club. You got to deal with that club, right? right. The way you would deal with any other contract that you want to uh, that you want to come to an end you have to offer money um, so there's this system out there um, which you know seems like if a club is richer it can afford to buy better players how do you get richer well I usually you like you win prize money in tournaments you get TV rights you have jerseys you have um, you sell like, more tickets for gate your receipts and all of games. that right yeah and all that stuff means, hey, if there's more fan support, we'll, you know, we'll, you more we'll resources. more. Yeah. And, you know, fans and, – and there's really good research out there that, like, fans don't necessarily prefer a completely chaotic league where you never you – know, each season, like in a legislature, like all the powers redistributed equally. Again, they kind of like dynasties, but you also like underdogs to have kind of a shot. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting balance that you have to strike uh, yeah. if you want to create something which is really entertaining. Um, but at least with this system, like, you know, a team's like organic strength among fans is represented by the money it can make in sport. And then it can use that money to basically buy, make, take bets on players. Those bets won't always play off, which introduces some kind of, some amount of chaotic churn to the whole thing. Um, but what happens when a very, very rich person in these days, you know, it's like, you know, a mega billionaire out of, um, um, some country where they've made a lot of money off of oil or something like that, or, um, uh, there are some American business people who made a lot of money here on some hedge fund or something like that who now have all – and and like you know, it's not just that I see the team as an investment that will pay off. You know, It's my next best prospect. But boy, I'd like to be the kind of person who owns a sports team and gets to hang out with all the sports people and creates a winning team like it's a project in life. Right. Right. Um, so it's more like owning a winning racehorse, but like, you know, you're on TV all the time. Like, it's like all kinds of reasons why you might want to, or like a mega yacht or something like that. Yeah. 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 So it's, 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 it's both maybe an investment, but also a significant amount of conspicuous kind of consumption. Right. Right. Um, so I take millions and millions that I've earned in oil or some other industry and I inject them into the team to buy players. And if the theory is just efficiency, like who wants the players the most, they should go, then you don't necessarily see a problem with that. Right. But people did see a problem with that. And there were kind of two grounds. And, and I'm going to simplify it here. In the paper, I talk about this like zombie. It's OK. Go ahead. I'm not going to edit any of this out. Sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I thought no I was going to sneeze. I'm still going to. I just... <laughs> there we there go. There we go. OK. Whew, so, sorry, listeners. <sighs> I'm not. Uh, we need a little mute button. That felt good. Yeah. Well, um, so one one problem that can arise is clubs, in order to keep up, will we'll take these kind of bets um, on, on bets is maybe the wrong, but they spend money that maybe they shouldn't. Everything's amount of risk. They take too much risk and you end up with clubs going bankrupt and you get kind of a tragedy of the commons downward yep. spiral of clubs. Uh, and there imploding. also must be a concern about like one thing that might induce them to do that is if, if one person starts injecting just tons of cash into getting great players, if the, if the total number of clubs considered as a group if if it gets so lopsided that there's only really one club that can win on mm-hmm. a regular basis, right. that's terrible for all the other clubs. Their, right. their interest is actually to have enough spread of talent so that yeah. a lot of people can win and, yeah. and therefore it's enjoyable for lots of people to watch yeah. lots of different teams. Right? Right. It's kind of like a tragedy of the commons, uh, prisoner's dilemma type situation. Mm. But I uh, 
Another way of seeing it, which is uh, in some ways similar, but but in some ways a different explanation, is this financial doping idea. I right? loved that phrase. Um, this is my, you know, you know, my team is Arsenal. I, I like to follow Arsenal. I'm, right. I kind of made myself into a sports person, but just to follow Arsenal. <laughs> and, and wasn't it coined by someone in connection with yeah. that team? Arsene Wenger. Yeah. The, at, um, at least I found. That's what I found. Uh, this phrase, financial, it's just such a brilliant use of rhetoric. Right. That it's doping. Yeah, right. Uh, and, it, and it takes money, which is, you know, in the TV and car and bottled water area. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's not dope. That's just that's just money, right? right. So that's how those the markets work. Mm-hmm. Um, but by calling it financial doping, right? It's like, oh, it's this nasty drug you shot into the arm of the. It's you've it's, injected. I'm just paying for players. You've injected some kind of um, toxic substance or foreign substance that gives you an, an unfair competitive advantage. Yeah. Like it captures a lot of the things in, in one term because it gets the emotional truth right. for the people right. who object. Right. Like you know, in a way, it says like the. The financial might of a club should kind of depend on its past performance and the way that those past performances induce loyalty among club followers and, and attract new ones. And, and, and so, you know, it should be an expression of how much your fans want you to win, right? Uh, and, and how good you are at attracting new fans and not how good your owner is at finding oil. Right. Right. Uh, or selling it or what, or however else they make their money. Yeah. Right. We're cozying up to Vladimir Putin. And so what we need to do. And so so the ingenious solution, well, a, a solution could be. And again, I don't want to say that this was their effort or they didn't have bad motives and they weren't actually attracted to the problems. Like that's uh, what someone who responded to me um, thought. Again, I was too credulous about. But let's just say that one could have the view. Right. That. That this is wrong because the the reason we were using this money was to represent like organic support for the club um, as power in this player market, right? And it allows for the creation of dynasties, but it also leaves open the possibility because of bad bets and and good bets that scrappy little clubs will eventually grow up to be big clubs. And yeah, there can be change as well, right? And um and and so what we're going to do is we're going to disconnect these markets, and so the financial fair play rule says that um it's really simple. You have to run a profit. You can't run a deficit. Where you define... Yes. Well, this is the key point, right? Right. Where the money's coming from right. and it relates to the club as right. a club. Well, revenues... So revenues minus expenses has, has to be positive. But guess what? You can't count all your revenues, only footballing revenues. Only revenues related to football. Right. Now, I immediately started thinking of... Like, okay. So let's say the, the club buys a resort... Mm-hmm. And it's a resort where they, where they purport to practice like one weekend a year. Yeah. Uh, but but they sell, you know, you can go stay at this resort. Right. And you might run into a player. You might run into one of the owners. So it's a, basically it's a very elaborate form of Jersey. Mm-hmm. But it's a staying at a resort. Right. Right. So you this induces you to, to think about things like that in right. a way that you might not have thought of them. The association with the club adds value to your decision like so so you would go to a more expensive resort that was associated with something else you liked because of that association right and that might generate a whole new raft of money which isn't the you know the oligarch coming in with a bunch of uh, oil right money but is it footballing related Uh, but is it really football related i mean it's just like it right and 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 it's you only did it because of the rule right uh so you so you're pointing to the problem of drawing lines and and some of the easier ones and they're easier but still problematic are you know what if um what if someone pays an exorbitant amount for stadium naming rights like you know I want to make it the, the Joe Miller 
stadium. Right. Right. And you pay several billion dollars, which is, you know, a lot more than you would have needed to pay to secure the stadium naming rights. Like that clearly is like football. That looks fishy. It looks fishy and it may be a way of smuggling in money. So this is the black market critique, right? That you can try to shut off funds from the outside where here you see we're not even saying there's this thing which – no one would think looks like a market and another thing and then the rest of the market and you're trying to like wall it off. No, there's there's one con- there's one portion of the market you're trying to shut off from other portions of the market to prevent currency exchange between footballing dollars and other kinds of dollars, right? right? And um, but the problem is that it's still money, right? And people can find ways of saying, hey, I'm really paying for football, but they're really not paying for football they're, they're, or they're, uh, the money doesn't really come from football. Right. So that's a critique. But so too in campaign finance reform. In campaign finance, uh, in campaign finance, um, I have a limit as to how much I can contribute to your campaign. There are no limits to how much I can spend independently. But if we were to put some limits on there, one kind of critique of that is people are always going to find a way. You know, this is the hydraulic critique. Like no matter how much you restrict it, people will find a way to transform their money into speech which advantages a particular candidate or position. Right. And this could be, you know, some people who offer the critique that there's leakage around the mm-hmm. separation mechanism. Um, like some people offer that critique because they, they wish that separation would succeed and they're trying to help better separate. Right. Of course, other people offer that critique because they wish there were no separation at all. Right. And so they're trying to persuade people, uh, it's not worth it right. to try to separate because it can't really be achieved. And it, and it can be raised, I think this is raised anytime you create a separation mechanism, right? Because you're creating Yeah, this argument is going to so, happen. So, right, right. The concern is you can create these water coupons, but someone's going to be selling theirs off the back of a truck, you know, or, right. or you know. The, yeah. Of course, the other thing you know you will hear by way of critique is... If you create the separation, you're making it impossible for somebody with a, a, an outsider perspective to come in and inject power from a different location. Right. Which So instead of being the, oh, my God, the oil person, is this oligarch has come in and bought all this stuff. Well, you know, maybe it's good for someone to be able to come in and shake up football right. by having a lot of resources and doing things in a different way. Well, this is the other – The critique. incumbency protection the, yes, problem. Yes, this is the – or, or you, you might call it the entrenchment problem because anytime you wall off uh, an institution from outside power, you put, you put more and more pressure on the redistributive rules within that institution, right? So the, the, the rules, the power distribution and the rules for the use of that power uh, within the um, institution become all powerful, right? Because right. there is no interference. And, and so can, whatever change there will be, there will be right. only as a function of those internal things and right. not otherwise. So the critique of um, a move to segregate a market from other markets is, hey, this is just about incumbency protection. It's just about protecting incumbent powers. And you see that in European football where people say this is just a move by you know, uh, Manchester United, Real Madrid, Barcelona, you know, the big teams right. to keep out um, uh, your Leicester cities and your smaller teams where, right. you know, a very rich person can come in and really inject and really some shake capital. Yeah, and really yeah. shake things up. So too, and you've seen, uh, I cite to Kathleen Sullivan, but other people have made this critique of campaign finance reform that if you don't allow very rich people to come in and dump a lot of money on a campaign, um, it tilts everything in, in favor of incumbents who have name recognition advantage right. and other advantages from incumbency that make it more likely they'll win the election. So actually challengers need more money. Than yeah, do. I mean, you will fence yourself off from the important uh, contributions to politics made by billionaire doofuses, right? Like Tom Steyer and uh, the president. Mm. It's mm. a really compelling critique in that <laughs> instance. Um, and, and so, 
<laughs> the point of my paper is not to suggest um, I have views, you know, about campaign finance. Right. I'm I'm more attracted, I think, to the um, to the Michael John theory of the freedom of speech than to the Roberts Court theory of the freedom of speech. You know, the idea that the public forum idea that this is about all of us having our say, right? And yes. then I am about like, you know, connecting my speech ability to the rest of the market in right. such a way that I, you know, the more money I make, the more speech I can have. Um, and, and partly that's, a, you know, but it, it's also a view about the possibilities. of doing. I'm willing to try a lot to make right. it work, to risk black markets, to risk the incumbency problem because of the problems I see on the other side. Yes. But I'm not like... Ignorant. That's not the thrust of I'm it. not ignorant of those problems, right? right. I mean, the whole point of the paper is to say that anytime you have segregation, you have these, you have black market and you have incumbency, you have entrenchment concerns, right? And that's just something you're going to have to deal with and think about. Sure. Um, that's also true in marriage markets and, and, you know, adoptions and all kinds of other situations where we are allocating things. Um, these problems also arise. Um, sometimes they are... I think insurmountable for various reasons, and sometimes they are surmountable. And the degree to which they are surmountable probably depends on the way that we, you know, the way we devise the rules, and whether we use the same currency and try to restrict it, or whether we use a different currency, or what you know, and what the penalties are for transferring, et cetera, the, et cetera. The et cetera. restricting issue is, of course, the 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 paper ends. Um, on a very, very high note, which is to say a two-by-two two <laughs> table um, about, like, when do we think we would observe an effort to wall off right. uh, a, a market from the other markets right. so that its own currency, uh, its own unit of power and the rules associated with that unit of power could do their work right. without the int- what would be perceived to be an intrusion – uh, from power accumulated elsewhere, right? Uh, uh, through a currency exchange, uh, and um, and that's another piece of it, right? You, you know that if you decide to try to wall off, that you're going to generate arguments about black market leakage and arguments about entrenchment of incumbents, right? Um, but there's sort of the prior thing is, well, should we try to wall it off? Yeah, I won't. I won't mention. You know, I won't go into detail about the two by two box, but I will say that. Um, that the I think you're more likely to find a, a will to segregate um, when there is mu- when there's a lot of uniformity around the nature of the purpose. I say nature of the purpose rather than the purpose itself, because itself because there could be some you know fuzziness. But the more uniformity there is around the market's uh, purposes and the kinds of purposes it has, um, the more people will. You know, the, the the more traction you'll get in an argument that you know this needs to be treated differently, right? If, right. if people have, you know, what, what's the purpose of the TV market? Well, it's like very different. I don't know who should have what kinds of TVs and how many they should have, um, but you can imagine another society in another time where that would be really important. That's the only way of getting important political information. You know, it's scarce enough where maybe everybody could have one, but the minute some people start to have big ones and four of them, there'll be a lot of people with none of them. You might have different ideas about like the the social meaning of TVs. This right. is the uh, you know, the Walter quote I have about the beginning, which is about the social meanings of, of goods. Um, uh, so so the more uniformity there is, the more like segregation looks like a desirable option because, you know, we want to make sure we pursue that purpose and we can perceive it clearly. Um, but pulling against that, uh, yeah, in addition to like disuniformity, um, might be that um, no matter what decision we make here, and how much we wall it off, 
the kind of the resources for affecting our decisions w- will vary depending on decisions made outside the market. Okay, so let's suppose we really wanted to separate the car market from the truck market for some reason, right? Um, and you, you can imagine a time and place where that would be really important, where you think, oh, well, you know, you know, distributing cars in a particular like egalitarian way or something that, that's super important for some reason. But like trucks, it should, you know, that should just kind of flow wherever efficiency demands that truck uh, production flows, truck production and allocation flows. Like maybe you can imagine that. I'm just coming. This is the top of my head, Joe. You tell me if this is ridiculous. But no matter how much we wall that off, if the truck market is powerful enough, right, it's going to. You know, every truck you produce is taking materials away from the kind thing. You know, both labor and yeah. other kinds of capital. And that's just a matter of the fact that the factors of production for trucks and the factors right. of production for cars overlap enough. Yeah, that choices you make in one are are going to so, affect the yeah. other. Not because of the way you socially established the unit of power and right. how to make decisions, but but literally physics. Yeah, like right. right. Exactly. <laughs> the right. factors of production. Yeah. Input raw materials, blah blah blah. And I use the word rivalry in the paper, although there's a, it's not quite that. I still am thinking, you know, it's it's there's a natural communication between the two kinds of decisions, right? Right, which cannot be controlled by any person, no matter how much you wish to disconnect them, yeah, or any person's decision well, about right. the connectedness for on some other ground, right? It, it's not because you're choosing to connect them, but like any decision you make, there'll be a natural um, you know, influence on what goes on in the other market, right? Because it'll raise the price of this or that commodity necessary this or this yep. or that factor or something like that so i don't Th- know therefore even if you wanted to wall them off from one another you're going to be somewhat frustrated in your ability to do so right uh, so uh, circling back to the instance where there's a lot of social convergence around a purpose that might suggest we could wall it off well when will we be successful in walling it off mm-hmm. um when the Factors of production that go into that thing don't naturally communicate with the factors right. of production of some other really important thing that it might be at cross purposes with. And a lot of social decisions we make are going to be like second best decisions, right? They're not going to be perfect. Um, but what this suggests is that when things are as like naturally connected in terms of factors as trucks and cars, when we set our sights on having one social purpose with respect to cars and pretend like trucks can just be their own kind of free market commanding factors, like – we have narrowed our sights too much, right? <laughs> because there's a so, the social decision that we want to make about cars cannot be made without also making some important social decisions about trucks. And we just have – like it's possible to screw this up and we've screwed it up by like regulating one and segregating it from the other Now, one much. last thing about so, – so in, a, in, in those, that set of examples toward the end where you're contrasting, for example, um, the, the market for uh, adjudication yeah. uh, in a legal system for the market for – uh, market adjudication, consumer market, like, yeah. and TVs and cars, where and judge has at least for a single decision, kind of a monopolistic unilateral ability to reach a decision and is influenced by lawyers. And so, one yeah. we, thing we can do is we can see that we do wall that off by by uh, doing things like uh, uh, criminalizing bribes. Yes, right. Um, but it also it seems to me that another set of insights, you, just to be clear, like just to put it in the same language, you can't take money that you've earned in all these other connected markets and use it to get and, power in and the use it to get power in the adjudication market because you can't pay a judge. Uh, yeah, but but that and that and put that way, it's sort of uh, by by using this model and thinking about these uh, the these... And, and let me just interrupt. I'm sorry, but like just to observe, just to highlight it. Like again, you've got 
black market leakage and incumbency issues, right? It right. turns out that we want to entrench the judge and we and, and the danger of entrenchment is um, is controlled, we hope, by the mechanisms of appointment and professional qualifications and a certain kind of ethic right. about how to decide. Like those are ways of controlling the entrenchment problem. Yeah, sure. And then black market leakage, we try to raise the penalties high enough for bribery. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it seems to me another thing uh, that it might encourage you to ask yourself if you've made this decision to wall it off is um, – have I have I really looked for all the places where I might effectively wall off? So, for example, it seems to me in after reading your paper and thinking about the design choices, um, you 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 could see yourself asking questions like, and I'm saying I don't know what the answer is, but uh, back to the price cap point, mm-hmm. um, you could see yourself thinking like, huh, should we be capping the amount of money a party could spend? on legal services yeah. because after all the money they spend on legal services is a way to try to inject power gotten elsewhere into the adjudication market right. since adjudication is a function in part of the quality of legal materials each side presents right so if there's a huge disparity in uh, in buying power in these two litigants let's say in mm-hmm. the case of an adversary presentation of a case right uh that's going to affect the likelihood of victory for the party who has a lot more resources. And it depends on your estimation of the of the degree of efficacy of the secondary influence market, right? Yes. I mean, this is like the political science literature about campaign finance, right? If we actually knew that most of that money was wasted, then like who cares if rich people spend a lot of money exactly. on campaigns, right? And you might say oh, it's not worth the trouble. And, and indeed, like uh, Bill Eskridge in his Politics Without Romance article um, talks about like the relative advantage of courts over legislators – for deciding certain kinds of public interest questions, precisely because courts tend to uh, narrow the um, uh, the kind of narrow the gap between financially asymmetrical parties, right? So, like, if I've got a lot of money and someone else doesn't, I'm still one of the two sides, right? But it it is true, I can, you know, I can't afford as much for a lawyer, and then the question is, okay, well, but I also, like, if I I had to, like, try to get my way in in the U.S. Senate, um, the fact that there are going to be hundreds of lobbyists for the other side in the cloakroom and I've got maybe one lobbyist who's on a shoestring means I'm pr- – you know, so the idea is I'll probably be less successful there than I would be in a court. And part of that is the ethics of judging and the way trials go and the procedures. So it's much more equalizing. Yeah, I think that I'm, – I'm worried that that's being overestimated in, yeah. the, in that particular instance mm-hmm. or at least, again, this is the sort of conversation you can imagine. But you have it because you see it this way. Correct. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Is that it? That's it for me. Okay. It's a great paper. People should read it. Oh, thanks, Are you John. putting it in the show notes? Um, Segregation of Markets yeah, by I Christian I, Turner. Oh, boy. Yeah. There, what? there we go again. That's, well, that's what it is. Yeah. No, it is. It is. I, I, we haven't talked about it. I don't know. I don't, I don't, you don't okay. know what? I don't know. It's weird talking about my own paper. Well, that. we did. So yeah, we did. It was, it. I thought it was good. I enjoyed, it I enjoyed the conversation. I did, too. I appreciate your close attention. And I love it that we did it. Like now, I see how we do um, <clears throat> papers in this like weird way. Like the, like the <laughs> <laughs> now, now, so many years into this, yeah. Um, the stuff I would have led with, we did it t- closer to the end. Maybe people should listen to the show backwards. Oh, you'd have to do it, and you know, you can't actually listen backwards, right? But yeah, you you'd can. have to like go to the last ten minutes, and then yeah. go to the next to last ten minutes, and go to the next to the next to the last ten minutes, right? Oy. And maybe there could be some kind of algorithm or something which 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 tells you what the best the most optimal time slice is. 
Maybe mm. it's three minutes. Maybe it's three and a half minutes. So maybe why would you minutes. have led with the stuff we got to the end about? Because it's only because of the way that I arrived at the paper. Like at first, it was just this very simple observation about the the symmetric nature of the of the two very different kinds of markets. Isn't that kind of cool? And this is like a new like the identification of a new regulatory technique that is a general one, right? That right. Pe- that people talk about in specific instances, which I think. It, but um, the but the. The broader point is part of the larger project about you know yeah. the nature of um, of law and social reality, right? That it is about perception and about the the kind of the the conventions that we place on top of these observations that we have, right? Yeah. Which create these real structures, right? But the real structures are not they're not um, as some people say they're not really real, <laughs> like they're only conventionally real, and they're subject to being thought of differently. And so we can intentionally change our perspective on things in order to get new insights and in how best to treat each other. Mm. This is the and this paper in that way exposes the fact that you are not really a jurisprude uh, or, uh, or or a lawyer as much as you are a social theorist who, because of your legal training, you. you Law is a set of go-to mechanisms and tools for you that you feel very comfortable yeah. talking about and using. But you're really just sort of a freewheeling sociology social theorist. I love the freewheeling part of that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You're like the Max Weber of oh, wow, wow. or something. Wow. Okay, I, I, I'm going to stop it so they're not even going to hear anything after Max Weber. They're not going to hear anything else. <laughs> uh, but I said the Max Weber of now. Of now. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's right. wow. Um, uh, I will say let – me, let me say this. Okay. Um, this is uh, uh, no. I will not let you say. Let me, uh, I've said that a bunch. Like I don't know. It's almost a tick. The show, but that's also a tick. But like I'm trying to <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> out with it. I feel like it. I'll get better with this. The more, the more regularly we do it. But um, you know, I started off in mathematics, as you know, right? I do know that. I feel like for my whole life, I've been trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Like you know, I'm, I'm a person. I'm like, what is all this? <laughs> what's <laughs> what, what's happening? Like you, know, you, you have that as a kid, right? Like, sure, sure. You know, and as you get, you're lying in bed and you're at night, and you're like, wait, what is happening around here? What is what yeah. is this? Yeah, what, what is what this? is all this? Question mark. Exactly. What is happening? Question mark. Right. You and, seem like two um, really important things to interject. For a long time, for me at least, mathematics seemed to be driving toward, especially you know, because uh, when, when you first do mathematics, you 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 know, you learn addition and subtraction. You learn some algebra. That's a generalization of arithmetic. You learn some calculus and functions, which is kind of generalization of algebra in a way. And then you generalize that. And it, this process of generalization, you kept seeing a more ultimate thing, which was behind the stuff you already learned. Mm. And and so I'm like, tell me more. Like I want to. Yeah, I want. You know, let's let's go all the way with this. Right. Um, yeah. For a moment there, um, it seemed like I understood everything. Yeah. And and maybe I had that Bertrand Russell moment where it's like, huh, this is not gonna do it in the mm. end, right? It's just not going right. to, um, uh, yeah. But it was, you know, super fun and fits my way of thinking about the world. Let's see what is, um, uh, what is, what is true that explains a lot of other stuff, right, um, that seem to be disconnected. You know, these, this doesn't seem to be like this, but there's this underlying principle which shows you why both things are the way that they are, right? And you just keep driving, keep driving. Um, and so the shift to law, right, was really, it was through as we've talked about on the show before, through like wilderness exploration and like, the, you know, the, um, encounters with the sublime and nature that mm. seemed real. And so I wanted to, you know, shift my career to something which protected that and which um, mm. was otherwise like enmeshed with that. Like I wanted that to be my career. And so, But then I got into law and, you know, I'm an academic by nature, I think is what it is. And, right. and maybe a teacher by nature. And so I 
I saw there again, hey, maybe here's, this is a different pathway. It's like a different avenue opens up other than mathematics for seeing, you know, wow, what's going on here? What's happening, <laughs> right? And, 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 and the more uh, academic law I learned, the more I saw a different way of seeing that problem. Not better answers, but a different way of seeing that problem. And all of my legal work, my legal academic work, is about, I think, driving toward that question of what's happening here. What's, what's really going on? You know, I, not what is law, although that's the famous jurisprudence question. Mine is, like, what are we doing when we do law? Mm. You know, which is ultimately about, like, what are we, in a way? Right. right? So Yeah, that's – and I think you're – you are chopping words off that. Uh, so it's you know what are we doing when we do law? I think you're you're getting to what are we doing when we do? Mm. Yeah. Well, it ultimately comes down to what are we, and that's kind of a question I'm interested in these days. Right. But um, uh, but I'm getting there. I think the big project is the the you know the book project is integrating these things I've done before. But at least we have a title in service of that. What is that? We. Mm. For this show? No, the title for the book. Oh, it's just the word we. Hmm. I think it's sufficiently capacious. Hmm. It might be insufficiently informative. Yeah, maybe not any worse than like not self, not law. Mm. But um, yeah, I don't recommend that. Yeah, no one does. But like most people don't recommend anything that I do. So it's (laughs) (laughs) fair enough. Uh, Okay. I think we should end it up here. This okay. Is enough navel gazing, and we're going to get on. We did no navel gazing. There was well, no navel gazing. You know, I always get uncomfortable with it. But um, Wait, there was no navel gazing. You did a great job. I object to the characterization. You did Withdraw a great, it. You did a great job. I think we should ship it. What do you think? Yes, do it. All right. Do we hit know? The button. Do we know what we're doing next? No. Hit we're going to make no promises about what we're doing Correct. next. Hit the button. No promises. Okay. I'm going to hit the button.